we've got everything mixed up and we're going to have a whole new birth future. When we put physiology first, physiology before force, now we're in touch with what the body is doing. We just haven't been taught about how the baby moves through the pelvis properly or how the body responds to birth or what the body can do. We're still operating on what we knew in 1880. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Do you know what makes some vaginal births fast and others slow? Some easy and others difficult, if not impossible? Optimal fetal positioning is the answer, and despite what we've been led to believe, head down is not the whole story. Gail Tully, the world's foremost expert on fetal positioning and founder of Spinning Babies, is here with us today to explain how your everyday activities, from your job to how you sit, stand, and exercise, greatly influence the position of your baby at birth. Tune in as Gail details simple steps you can take to optimize your baby's position for your safest, easiest, and probably fastest vaginal birth. Well, Gail Tully, we are so excited to have you on the podcast. You're a living legend, and I know Trisha and I have been admirers of your work for all the years we've been doing what we do, and we're really excited to have you start this episode by explaining to pregnant couples the importance of optimal fetal positioning. That is beyond that of a head down or vertex baby. But first, why don't you just give us a little background on exactly who you are and how you got into the work that you do? Well, thank you, Cynthia and Tricia. It's wonderful to be here with you. I was a home birth midwife. I was, I was in college for becoming a social worker. I wanted to do psychotherapy. And I had a child early. I, I had an easy birth. And my neighbor started asking me to come to their births. Uh, I was pursuing nurse midwifery and then realized I would have to leave people in the middle of their labor. And, and that was breaking my heart. So I investigated the home birth midwifery and I did that for many years. I became a doula and a doula trainer. And I was noticing when a woman wanted to have a natural birth that the preparation would be similar to someone, let's put it this way. There could be two people wanting to have a natural birth with their children. And one would go on and have a straightforward, you know, eight to 24 hour labor. The other person might be at it for days. In those days, there were two conflicting reasons for easy birth. One was the person accepts birth and isn't afraid. And therefore, if she didn't have an easy birth, that person was said to be too uptight. Okay, that was in the psychology of the natural birth movement in those days. On the other hand, she might be told her pelvis is too small, her baby is too big, it could be cephalopelvic disproportion, which means the baby's head is unproportionately too big for the pelvis. Of course, many, most women who are told that about one baby go on to have a vaginal birth afterwards for a subsequent child disproving 
the idea that their pelvis is too small. So I watched that happen a few times. And I went, what's the real reason for easy birth? And the first thing I observed was fetal positioning. So when we talk about the baby's head, the baby's head is longer front to back and not a ball. The pelvis is longer side to side, not perfectly round. And yet in our childbirth education manuals, in our midwifery text and obstetric text, there's often a little paragraph that talks about the passenger, the passage, and the pressures. And a picture of a basketball and a basketball hoop might accompany that description. So the idea is, is the ball the right size for the basketball hoop? And if it's just a little bit big, we can push that ball through with Pitocin, with literally with uh, hands on the fundus, or we can say just walk and squat and let's try to get this baby in, all the while ignoring the baby's position. And so I went, okay, we have a difference between the baby facing the front or facing the back due to the nature of their head being longer front to back. So think about that longer head uh, across of the pelvis. If the baby's facing the hip, in a pelvis that's wider side to side, the baby will slip into the pelvis with the help of uterine contractions. But if the baby is facing the front, the baby's head makes a little bridge from front to back over the opening of the pelvis. And the contraction pushes the baby's head into the pubic bone again and again. And this could go on for two days. And the assumption is the baby's too big for the pelvis when indeed, if we could help the baby to turn towards the hip, the baby could drop into the pelvis and the baby would say, thank you for noticing. Right. <laughs> I just needed something. Now, what is that something? Asking the good question, what makes birth easier? Led me beyond intent. If there isn't an obstruction in medical terms, it's called an obstruction. So I started to go, well, what would cause this? I see two people with similar intent, similar preparation, whether it's hypnobirthing, whether it was the Bradley method in the 80s, two people doing the same thing and one ending up with a three-day labor. Why? Well, head down is only half the story. We get to be around 30 weeks in pregnancy and the midwife says, your baby's head down. And everybody relaxes. Okay, I don't have a a breech baby or a transverse lie baby, as if I'm ready to go. But actually, it's more about the baby tucking their chin and being in position that reflects the physiology of birth. And so why wouldn't they do that? Well, there seems to be three reasons that are all really the same reason. And that's the space in the anatomy doesn't allow the baby tuck their chin and, and get into position the way gravity would have. You see, the baby has a flexible spine and neck. So curling up in what's called flexion is really the natural physiological, neurological position for a fetus in the womb if we look across different species. Gail, in the case of a posterior baby, what exactly is going on there? Because the baby is head down or vertex but it's difficult for the baby to tuck their chin. And why is that? 
in a posterior baby, a baby who's facing the front of the womb, the maternal lumbar spine pushes the baby's spine into a straight position, which then takes the baby's chin away from their chest because their spine is straight in the background. And due to this position, the long part of the head comes to the pelvis first. Then it could be a bridge across the front or the back of the pelvis, or it could come down a little bit into the pelvis and, and tend to get stuck because it's, it's still like too long for that direction or diameter inside the pelvis. Now there's muscles and fascia and ligaments holding all that anatomy. It's not simply a womb that's a water balloon and a cervix that's a donut and a pelvis that's a basketball hoop. When we think like that, then the baby's position seems to be a personality disorder. The baby is just stubborn and it won't come down the, the chute, you know? So the baby gets in the best position it can according to the space available. Now we live in gravity. We're moving in a gravity field. We have a sudden stop and the ligaments can spasm and tighten. The uterus is wrapped in arms and embraces of fascia and ligaments. We have broad ligaments like wings across the front of the uterus connecting it to the sides of the pelvis. We have round ligaments like two little two little ropes in the front that anchor the uterus like a hot air balloon with its ropes. Um, we have the cervix is not alone in the body but is rather supported by a series of spokes. If you think of a bicycle uh, wheel, the cervix is the hub in the center and the ligaments are the spokes that lead out to the circle of the pelvis. One time I was riding my bicycle and I hit the curb in such a way that all the spokes twisted around the hub and of course it bent the wheel. And what happens when the soft tissues inside the pelvis get tight and twisted, you can imagine your water balloon. <laughs> if you twisted a water balloon, there's less space, right? And in the lower uterine segment, it's soft. And the twist makes less space for the baby. Now my mind, body, my attitude, my intent, my confidence is at a challenge because I'm doing the contractions. I'm moving. I'm in gravity. I'm out of bed. I'm doing the lunges, the squats, the walking, the stairs, you know, whatever I can do, unknowns to me, that my uterus has a twist in it and the baby can't get through the twist. And this twist can be a, a little bit or it can be so much that the baby has to lay sideways because they can't put their head down at all. And I came to this understanding by going backwards, by saying when we learn techniques that help take the twist out of the soft tissues, that help take the tension out of the muscles and the ligaments, by addressing what we call body balancing, so it's not too tight, not too loose, not too twisty, suddenly the baby comes into position. That suddenly might be in minutes. It might in pregnancy be a couple of days. You know, it's like the uterus is trying to help the baby get into the pelvis. That's the first job. So someone can have strong contractions two days, two centimeters dilated, 
the baby's high, and people are thinking, oh, the pelvis is too small. Now, this is a very rare event. It does happen. It can happen that malnutrition or an accident, something that happened to the person over the years causes their pelvis to be too small to give birth. I've probably seen cephalopelvic disproportion 10 times, and I think that I see it that many times because people come to me and say, come and help us at a birth that's not happening, right? It's not, it's not, it's a higher percentage than the average midwife might find. We want our children to be able to run and jump and play so their pelvis develops nicely. You know, one of my favorite things to do, and this is how I go to births during the, the pandemic, is that a midwife will call me up and say, we have been doing everything. And this, per, we, you know, we, we did some of your techniques and we did some of the favorite midwifery techniques and we did some of the favorite labor and delivery room techniques. We had her leaning over the peanut ball uh, with her leg way up and over. We, we did sideline release, which is like the queen of all untwisting techniques uh, from Carol Phillips. We don't have an epidural on place. What else can we do? And what I do see from a generation of sitting um, and driving around in cars or sports accidents, we don't have this full range of motion because we're not out in the fields, up and down, doing steps, walking miles. You know, that's not our lifestyle for most of us anymore. And so sitting seems to make a locked sacrum. Now, what's a sacrum? The sacrum is the sacred door of birth in the back of the pelvis. It is a triangular bone at the base of the spine. And if you reach around the back and you find those two little dimples that you see in a plastic baby doll, uh, that is the border of the top of the sacrum. So that's called your sacroiliac joints, the joints between the triangular sacrum and the hip bones. And then below that is this curving sacrum. It's about the shape of the palm with the tailbone being down at the long finger in the center, the tailbone, people know their tailbone. <laughs> so the tailbone's at the bottom of the sacrum. We need the sacrum to be a little bit mobile. The fascia that coats the sacrum is like a webbing of connective tissue. And it also holds a bunch of muscles in the back, like the piriformis or the glutes, right? So it's a busy place and a little comforting touch is soothing and relaxing. Now, I'm not talking about counter pressure for this assessment. You're feeling for an underground river. You feel for the fluid moving under the skin. Very lightly touch. Feel that underground river. If I feel the slightest motion, it just feels alive. What does that tell you, Gail, if you feel it? Then I know her sacrum's mobile and we can have a baby, right? <laughs> and when I feel that and it feels like a warm table, there's no motion. I know my job is to actually help mobilize the sacrum. A baby who's gone through a pelvis that's had a few older siblings go through it can sometimes come out with a 15 centimeter head and no molding. How does a 15 centimeter head have no molding when the outlet is only 13 centimeters? It's because the sacrum moves out of the baby's way. And the more babies you have, the more mobile you tend to have it, even if you had a cesarean the first time, your pelvis can have more mobility because you have more relaxing. 
that was my exact question is that's just the impact of relaxing having and that's why it's so important to actually labor even if you have a cesarean section the impact of relaxing latent pregnancy and labor is impacting your sacral mobility for future pregnancies yes it's helping you to have an easier birth next time and it's helping your baby get catecholamines to breathe air even if the baby has mm -hmm. a a birth by cesarean to finish the process. Gail, is the mobility of the sacrum directly linked to the absence of twisting in the uterus or is this a separate important issue? Oh, thank you very much. It's a separate and important issue. Cynthia, that is such a good question because I went on a tangent. The twisting of the uterus could happen with, like say I'm a kid, I'm, I'm 10 years old, I'm riding my bicycle and I swerve and I hit the curb. Now I'm going in a curve myself and my trajectory on the bicycle is in a curve. The inside soft tissues are still moving with centrifugal force. And so the uterus turns in the direction that I was going and keeps going. And the shock of the impact, especially if there's an emotional element to it, can make the fascia stiffen and hold that twist. Do you understand what I mean? It's like it freezes. Gail, how can a woman know if she herself has any twisting of the uterus? Can she self-assess in any way? And can this also impact a woman who basically doesn't do any of these unusual activities, but she walks, she goes to an office job? Could she also be impacted by this? I would suggest body balancing for a particular group of women, and those are those that live in gravity. <laughs> Okay. 100% of us. Took a second to click. <laughs> right. Because we, we do, we want to feel safe. So we want to, we have an aversion to thinking that we need special help. And it's true that some people are doing a lifestyle that keeps them in balance. And it's not just the pregnant person who's done yoga all their life. It needs to be a particular yoga that helps range of motion, supple lung muscles, and is addressing the whole parts of the body and not over exercising certain muscles to the neglect of others. So for the person who has a desk job like myself nowadays, um, we're bending our knees forward all the time and this shortens the front of the body. The psoas gets short, it can get stiff, that holds the baby up like two little shelves on either side of the head. So we need our psoas to be long and supple and walking with the striding gait, soft sole shoes. So we have 30 some muscles going to the pelvis and different repeated behaviors tend to shorten some and lengthen others. And what we want to do to prepare is give each of them a chance to be long and supple. One simple recommendation that I've always given to women in late pregnancy is to be very conscientious about reclining versus forward leaning positioning. Um, that the reclined position that we often assume when we're sitting in a chair or driving our car or sitting on the couch is not helpful. And that if you can yeah. try to be more forward leaning when you know you're gonna sit for prolonged periods of time or if you're sitting on a couch watching a show to maybe be in a sideline position. We want to be up on our tuberosities. So for instance, if we think about the design of this, the pelvis, we don't want to be sitting back on our sacrum for very long. 
I got an email the other day. Somebody said, oh, my goodness, I have a dental appointment. Is this going to be a problem for my baby's physician? Not likely because it's short term. If we balance that with movement, we can lay down on our back for an exam at the midwife's office. We can, you know, sometimes you're, you're in bed. You just need to be on your back for a, a short period of time. Um, your body tends to tell you when you have to roll over. It's, it's better to be on your side in general, but we don't have to avoid leaning back compulsively. We need to give our right. bodies lots of different directions and movements and move our joints, you know, in different positions, our feet included. So high heels can cause that tightening and immobility of the sacrum. If we have been in high heels for years before the pregnancy, we have shortened our calf muscles and pulled the ligaments tight in the back of the pelvis and that pulls the tailbone in the way of baby's passage. I have over the years gone, how can birth be easier? What's been done for hundreds of years and what's coming out of other professions other than birth? I feel like our audience is probably many women out there listening to this and going, oh my gosh, you know, I may be at risk of having either sacral immobility or twisted uterus. And I'm wondering if we can help them to understand if there are ways for them to know. As Cynthia mentioned before, can they self-assess? Is there a way for them to determine that they may be at higher risk of this? And at what point should they start seeking help? The answer is yes and no. So let's talk about what are invitations to act. We could call them red flags, but that's alarmist. Let's call them invitations to act. Our body is talking to us. The pain and discomfort of pregnancy is not meant to be debilitating, to keep people awake, to prevent walking, to hurt when you roll over. These are imbalances. Something's too tight and something else is too loose and it lets the pelvis get a little wonky. Comfort falls within the meeting place of stability and mobility. And this is not only pregnancy comfort, but all pelvic comfort. So if people have pelvic pain, if someone had a tipped uterus before they got pregnant, this is an indication that a ligament is too tight on one side and too loose on the other, it tipped the uterus over. That doesn't go away with pregnancy. We can't detect it anymore because the baby filled in the uterus. But come time for fetal positioning or birth, it may impact, it may slow things down. So we want to give the different parts of our body just an opportunity to make room for the baby. Think about it as a spectrum of ease. Some people just need a little balancing. Some people just need one technique to turn them around from being pushed into the operating room. I've seen that again and again. How does a woman know, Gail? It, the, the pain and the discomforts of pregnancy are a red flag. Yeah, Fetal malposition okay. is an invitation to act. If the baby is not head down curled, probably by 30 weeks, or if the baby isn't vertical by 26 weeks, like the baby might be breached for a while, but by 30 weeks, I would be very interested in a head down baby. This doesn't mean that the baby might not spontaneously turn head down at 36 weeks, once in a while that does happen, but because it happens once in a while spontaneously, 
too many people neglect the body balancing necessary to help more babies do it. Because at 30 weeks, 15% of babies are going to be breached. But at the 40 weeks, it's going to be three or four or 5%. As people have low thyroid function, so a little bit overweight, a little bit slow in the morning, tend towards more fetal malposition. We have a couple studies showing more breach, one study showing more posterior babies, and that's a metabolic imbalance. So as we do body balancing, we're letting our body's metabolism function. The point of this is function. A baby whose chin is on their, on their chest, and they're usually on the left side of the body, that's an indication of function. The uterine contraction is going to help that baby get into position. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E.com and use promo code down to birth. Is the link between the hypothyroidism and the malposition related to lack of uterine contraction? Is that the metabolic impact? Oh, you mean like the normal exercises of the uterus? Yeah, like the Braxton Hicks type of thing. Is that where that connection is? That's a really interesting question. I'm trying to to see that, trying to figure out in my head how that corresponds. Well, in the studies on in the studies on occurrence, they didn't talk about causes. Why? That would be more yeah. studies. Okay. But, but it does lead us towards metabolic reasons, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And so we know that, for instance, a nice prenatal yoga improves the metabolism, reduces low thyroid, increases all kinds of good reactions. Because these are movements that make long muscles hold the pose that helps the fascia. I, I tend to veer away from things that are all about core strength, the cross training. That can actually be contribute to malposition. Well, it can contribute to a baby that can't come through the pelvic floor. The pelvic floor is a button hole, right? There's a pelvic floor is like a, a it goes upwards in living people. And it's like a kala lily, like the petal of a kala lily guiding the head down through opening. And if we make it short and tight, which happens from just kegeling and not doing adduction exercises, we are making a buttonhole that is tight and short and we're the contractions pushing our little button, the head of the baby into that buttonhole again and again and again, and the pain goes through the roof. We can turn that around with a sideline release on both sides the buttonhole lengthens, softens, the baby says, thank you very much, rotates, comes down through five centimeters and makes going into transition much more smooth and, and because we've taken the tension out of the muscle. 
and birth happens. And we're seeing first time births. When people start preparing at 30 weeks and they're on it, they're doing 30 minutes a day, okay? You don't have to put your life aside to do this. We're seeing people with their first babies under eight hours and pushing stages under 30 minutes again and again and again. Wow. That was my experience with my daughter when she was she was nine and a half pounds at birth. Yeah. And so again, 14 centimeters was her head. Yeah. No molding. Yeah. So it was interesting to hear. And a first baby. That was my second. My first was, okay. my first came in three hours. My second came in five and a half. It was interesting yeah. to hear that though. And I remember during my labor, I was on my hands and knees. My husband called the midwife over and said, oh my gosh, Amy, look at this. Because he could witness my sacrum lifting <laughs> during a surge near the end. And it blew his mind. And in that moment, I could feel this ache go down my femurs at the same time. Does that make sense to oh, you? Oh, can you imagine? Now, let's picture this. We have the, the, we have the sacrum. And the sacrum, here we are on hands and knees, right? This is the hip yes. bone. The tummy is down here. And here's the buttocks. And here's the sacrum and the tailbone. And this rises up. I, I can't even get this, you know, like this rises up away from baby's head. And that's opening these joints, these sacroiliac joints as the sacrum comes up. And as that opens, then your leg sockets are moving. So you got this change in the fascia here, a pull here, and you felt it go down your legs. That's what happened. <laughs> And Gail, I was very surprised to learn that babies tend to go down by 30 weeks because I always learned it was around 32 to 35-ish weeks. Is it true that 85% of babies are head down by 30 weeks? Do they weigh enough to even go down before that? Oxhorn and foot says the baby is in their birth position by 34 weeks. So right. when we become aware of physiology, the guideline changes. They go ahead down sooner. We have judged birth based on a mechanical perspective. How do we force this? How do we make this happen? You know, what's the one position that saves us all? So that's our thinking because it's it's rather a linear thinking. And spinning babies, just from the name of it, you might think it's not linear. Babies spiral through the pelvis. If we can help feel rotation through the pelvis for the baby, it becomes easier for the birthing person, easier then also for their midwife, doctor, nurse, doula, family, and more skin to skin. The purpose of easier birth is so that baby can go to the most ideal position after birth, which is skin to skin, right on the chest. Skin-to-skin -skin contact regulates the baby's temperature, helps the baby brain function, helps breastfeeding, and changes the brain of the mother. And you get special gifts to nurture this particular child. It's the special hidden gifts that happen when the heart is in contact, when the hearts are in physical contact with each other through skin-to-skin -skin contact. There's a chemical change in the body that gets those synchronicities happening between the two beings. And we have no right to take that away from humanity. As care providers, 
as grandmothers, as elders, we have absolutely no right to be so safe and we're going to be so safe that we're going to manage this birth and we're going to clean the baby and get it all wrapped up in a blanket to bring to you all hygienic without the smells and the wetness and the immediate connection that that baby's craving. You know, when we don't traumatize the person in their birth and overstimulate their mental experience and keep them in their logical brain, distract them from their instincts, it's a different experience. So when a labor and delivery nurse or midwife sees parent after parent go, I'm just, I can't take the baby right now. I've just been through so much and they're trying to get the placenta out. And, and then they say about skin to skin, well, a lot of parents don't want that. That is because the whole system has been disrupted. And this is not our instinctual behavior with our offspring, you know? And so let's bring it back to physiology. Because it begins in birth. Yeah, it begins in conception. It begins begins in in breath. I talk a lot about how there are downstream effects to any intervention, but I want people to understand that an intervention doesn't necessarily mean pitocin or an episiotomy or epidural. It can simply mean having a mother on her back when it doesn't feel right to her or removing the baby right after the birth. All of these are interventions. And IV is very much an intervention. But anything we do that wouldn't have been totally instinctual to that couple or to that birthing parent is an intervention. And I feel like we need more appreciation for what those downstream effects are. Cynthia, I love that you say that because there, some of the first interventions that, that disturb birth are fear, as you know, lack of social support. Boy, is that happening right now with the shutdowns, a misunderstanding of nutrition and lack of movement. And the chair and the desk in the school setting are our first intervention for difficult birth. High heel shoes are early intervention. You know, so these are things that's nobody's fault. I mean, blame is not physiological. Blame is a result of powerlessness. And when we tune into our bodies and we allow ourselves to listen, how do I feel in my body right now? Am I tense hearing this? Do I feel judged? Am I excited? Do I feel opportunity? Do I feel like I can take, I can take on the adventure of pregnancy and birth because now I have some skills that are mine to have can just say, okay, this is what I am doing. How do I just tweak that to be a little more nurturing? What We do what we can do. Yeah, simple thing. Gail, can you talk about whether the uterus is symmetrical or asymmetrical and why that matters? A common question of a student midwife when she's measuring someone or, or, or they're measuring someone uh, midway through pregnancy, they might ask their preceptor, do I measure up the center or should I go over where the uterus is higher? And where the uterus is higher, it is on the right, typically, almost always. And that's called right obliquity of the uterus. So the uterus is slightly steeper, flatter on the right side, just a little bit, than the left side. The left side tends to be round. 
So a baby on the left coming down into the pelvis from the left tends to have their chin tucked, whether they're anterior or posterior coming from the left, rotation tends to go more readily. This is not 100%, but it's common. If the baby comes down on the right, they tend to lift their chin up and the right occiput transverse baby that's facing the left hip, they tend to take longer and they tend to need to rotate further or they can turn posterior. And that's why we have the first birth can sometimes be longer and the second birth is very often short. Flexion is more important. The chin to the chest is more important than the baby's position. Once the posterior baby is engaged, the labor tends to go along. So the back of the head is the occiput, and that's our landmark to say what's the baby's position. The posterior is the pregnant person's posterior, their sacrum, their spine. So in, in England, they'll say spine to spine. So if we want to reduce the cesarean section, we're going to add balance to the body in pregnancy and in early labor. And at any time we can do some techniques. The spectrum of ease means it's easier that if we start sooner, we have more opportunities than if we start at the last minute. People criticize me for talking about posterior and making women afraid. Because it's, we really want people to have confidence going into birth. And I agree. I want people to have confidence. If we empower them with the understanding, then they can take it from there. They have the choice. But if we pretend like, oh, babies turn at any time. Yes, babies turn at any time. But I'm not going to send my child to kindergarten on those statistics. You know, we don't need a crossing guard because most kids can cross the street without harm. Yes, that would be statistically true, but 15% of them not crossing the street safely is not something any of us would choose. Why do we ignore posterior? In Africa, it's causing fistulas, it's causing obstructed labor, it's causing death. We have the benefit of a cesarean at any time, day or night, but in most of the world, that doesn't exist. And we're importing high-tech strategies around the world and losing our physiological skills we need to know physiological birth. It is our physiological right. It is the right of the midwife to know these things. It's our responsibility. And it's our pleasure. It's joyful. The nurses love to go into a room where someone's suffering from pain or the baby's not coming. And they say, oh, we have some things that we can do. In a very simple scenario where a woman just needs very low intervention or a moderate tweak and they have a baby who's leaning toward the right is, is simply doing left sideline enough to have the baby turn. And so people go gravity first. And the three principles of spinning babies are balance, gravity, and movement. We are not water balloons where we just turn position and the baby floats over to that side. The ligaments, the muscles, the shape, the, the fact that the uterus isn't a sphere means that we need to release what's tight, untwist what's twisted support what's loose so baby can use gravity then. So if you don't have those obstructions and you use good posture, the baby tends to settle. Very often the sideline release can work. Forward leaning inversion can work. These come from Carol Phillips. She's a brilliant chiropractor who knows the soft tissue. We have birth positions of putting the knees together and the feet apart during pushing. 
to get the tuberosities out of baby's way. We've got everything mixed up and we're gonna have a whole new birth future. When we put physiology first, physiology before force, now we're in touch with what the body is doing. We just haven't been taught about how the baby moves through the pelvis properly or how the body responds to birth or what the body can do. We're still operating on what we knew in 1880 and trying to adapt it today. And we're trying to use the techniques we used with twilight sleep and, and complete anesthetics. Pull the knees apart. Hold your breath and push, push, push. We're back to 1950s. So we really have lots of research now on the fascia. What I did in the year 2000 was look at what happened through the centuries and bring it in. And then in 2005, brought in Dr. Carol Phillips's work and just started moving in this direction. But now since 2017, we have the research on the fascia to say slow, long, sustained stretches like the sideline release or forward leaning inversion or a jiggle, vibration up through for 10 minutes, 20 minutes through the tuberosity, through the hip, through the buttocks, through the thigh, helps release and mobilize the bones. You know, people can come to our conference. Uh, we're having an online conference to talk about this. We're having, uh, we have workshops for professionals. We have certified parent educators for parents. We have uh, information on our website. I am dedicated to have enough free information on our website for the world that we can reduce suffering and prevent deaths. And it's there, but you can pay for it and have convenient delivery of it. You can have free newsletters. You can have pour a cup of tea and start looking at the website. It's huge. It's massive. <laughs> I've looked at it. It is massive. There's so much. It's a many novels <laughs> yeah. of information. It's wonderful. Gail, when I work with couples, one of the most important things to me to help them with, or one of the most important myths I want to debunk yeah. are all the fears around having a big baby. And I feel like so many providers perpetuate that fear. And I think it's largely unsubstantiated. What if couples are listening to this and they have that fear and they think, but gosh, what if the baby is big? Because I think that sets the framework for so many decisions later that can take a birth plan off course. What do you say to that person around the fear of having a big baby? And why should they not have that fear, let's say? The size of the head is not as important as the angle of the head. When the baby tucks their chin and the, sends the crown of the head in the crown mold, and then we need to educate our providers because our providers are afraid of big babies because they're afraid of shoulder dystocia. And, and which has nothing to do with the head size. Which has nothing to do with the head size. Although bigger babies tend towards more shoulder dystocia, it's true. However, rotation of the shoulders is the key in bringing out the posterior arm. So providers need to have freedom to learn the proper resolutions of the problems they're afraid of. And when we have provider fear, the provider puts that fear into the parent so they can have control of their own fear by inducing early, by doing more cesareans, and we don't see a reduction in shoulder dystocia or other issues. If a baby is large because their mother was well-nourished, that's fantastic. If the baby is large because of high sugars, 
whether the sugars come from fruit or whether they come from starch, that's not a healthy baby. So if this person's having a lot of protein and vegetables and they're moving and they have a nine pound baby, 10 pound baby, that's fantastic. If their pelvis is mobile, the baby can tuck their chin and come through the pelvis. Most big babies are born sometimes easier than the five pounders, right? Because their weight helps them. If they're in a good position, we as providers need to know how to help big babies, little babies, breech babies, head down babies. We need to know physiology. It shouldn't be that we pass our fears to control parents. Same thing happens with breech babies. What they do in the UK very often is they say, how can we serve parents safely? What can we learn to be better providers? In America, we say, how can we control people so we don't have to deal with those situations? And that's absurd because these things are going to happen. There's going to be breech babies and they can be very normal. Breech babies are typically an easier birth, except for those few that need help. And then with proper training, you know how to rotate the baby and tuck their chin and out their come. But we have so much fear that we can't even hear that without our bodies just tensing up. We don't have the training. There is a study saying 37% of labor dystocias for unknown causes. Now, that's not because the birth is uh, such a mystery. It's not that the pelvis is such a mystery. It's that we don't have the skills. 37% of the time, we're blind to the cause. Spinning babies opens the curtain and exposes the cause. Deep transverse arrest, asynclitism, persistent posterior. We can resolve this most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time compared to what's going on in standard care today. The beauty of birth is the power is within the pregnant and birthing person. The baby and their parent are communicating together at all times. When that's in balance, it feels in sync and harmonious in our body. We are joyful and birth is flowing. And we can come into that. The answer is in our body, the questions in our body, the answers in our body. This is a way to empower parents while we empower providers. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at downtoverseshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. Cynthia and Trisha, you're so lovely. And I think because Trisha was a midwife, I really just started talking midwifery talk and I hope it wasn't too much. It was perfect. Okay. No, it was perfect.